is that why on earth should drama series produced in Denmark primarily for a Danish audience and all of a sudden this unexpected popularity that they start popping up and appearing in other parts of the world that mm. was yeah it was that, very unusual it was very yeah. very unusual yeah. that was the voice of Ushma Chahan Jakobsen associate professor at Aarhus University Ushma is ideally placed to answer the question why does Danish TV drama travel? Only about five and a half million people speak Danish, yet Danish TV drama has been popular around the world since the late 2000s. Even enticing English-speaking audiences out of their comfort zone to read subtitles. Ushma researches how language works with different globalizing processes and how language intersects with culture, power and knowledge. She was my guest along with Pia Maybrit Jensen, also Associate Professor at Aarhus University, but in the Media Studies Department. Pia works primarily with television, including format drama and crime drama. Pia and Ushma can help us to find out why Danish TV drama is popular the world over. Welcome to this Nordics Info podcast. Nordics Info is a research dissemination website based at Aarhus University in Denmark and publishes material by researchers on many different aspects of the Nordic countries within the social sciences and humanities. Nordics Info is part of the university hub Reimagining Norden in an Evolving World, Renew. This podcast series is based on me, the editor of Nordics Info, Nicola Whitcomb, catching up with different academics and discussing particular topics of the day with them. I caught up with Ushma and Pia at the Department of Media and Journalism Studies at Aarhus University in October 2020 to try to get to the bottom of why TV produced by a small Nordic nation has ended up having a global audience. Well, thank you very much uh, for being here today and letting me interview you. Um, can you briefly explain how the project started? Yes. Uh, first of all, uh, we could see, like uh, from from traveling around the world to conferences, uh, that all our international colleagues were commenting on on these weird shows from Denmark that they had seen on their on their home channels, for example, in Australia. British colleagues were starting to comment, oh, this, this Danish show, uh, The Killing, and you know, even older shows. So uh, we knew there was something happening. And of course, the Danish press had also started writing about the fact that Danish series could now be sold to markets that we had never sold series to before. So it was this thing about the Danish series challenging the the centre-periphery structure of the, the television industry, where, of course, the Anglophone countries, especially the US and, and the UK, had, had somehow had the power to be very dominant. I think one of the, the, the sensitising concepts, or what we were thinking about, was this whole idea of this unexpected popularity. Is that why on earth should drama series produced in Denmark uh, primarily for a Danish audience uh, with this sort of tradition 
there is that, you know, families gather on Sunday evenings at eight o'clock and watch high quality Danish productions. And all of a sudden, this unexpected popularity that they start popping up and appearing in other parts of the world. That mm. was... Yeah, it was that, very unusual. It was very, yeah. very unusual. Yeah. And um, maybe to add to that, that perhaps it became even more unusual because there is this whole... Pia mentioned it earlier in terms of the periphery core uh, structure as such, is that this whole trope of smallness that uh, is so strongly associated with a lot of Nordic things, that small languages, small populations, small countries, small nations, uh, small, small, small. So how could it be that small people, small nations, small languages suddenly became popular in very major uh, markets? Could you explain a little bit about the sort of practical uh, reasons why these TV dramas have been able to travel. Yeah. The timing of when these series uh, were produced in Denmark coincided with the rising of streaming worldwide. So this rising of streaming services such as Netflix, uh, HBO, Hulu, Amazon, and of course also streaming services uh, in each country, like local streaming services, meant that they were, there, was a, there was a craving for content and also craving for content that was a little bit, uh, that could set each streaming service out from the next, that could somehow uh, brand the stations and say, we are the ones who have Nordic Noir or, you know, uh, and it didn't have to be, with streaming services, you don't have to have a gigantic success. You just have to have some viewers. And because Danish series were, and probably still are, fairly cheap to buy compared to other series from the Anglophone countries, uh, I think it became a key driver. I'm not sure that they would have traveled as widely if it hadn't been for the streaming services. And then there was another thing that was really, really surprising, mm -hmm. was that the content originated in a a public service broadcaster, mm, yeah. whereas the whole theory on media economy at this time was saying that a commercial broadcaster will have much more chance to create popular content, especially to travel, mm. because they can cater very uh, strongly to, uh, to popular taste. Yeah. Because there, there, there is this sort of tendency to think that uh, commercial uh, organizations are more flexible, ready. I mean, they're able to cater very quickly for niche markets and, mm -hmm. and they're very uh, malleable uh, and, you know, they can move direction very quickly. Whereas public broadcasters, because of this responsibility to such a wide uh, group of people, that they're, they're more heavy. They're, you know, it, 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 they have, they, there are very many things they have to take into consideration yeah. before they'll invest Mm. In, in because they have a remit that tells them more specifically what they have to, to do, do, also exactly. in terms of quality yeah. and yeah, uh, yeah. and and yeah, I think it, what the idea before in the theory was that because there are strong obligations in the public service broadcaster, they have to do like especially within drama, they have to do something that is 
very Danish, like it has to really hit the broad Danish audience, uh, then that, that can't travel. Um, and that's what made us sort of question, well, if these things struck such a chord with with uh, a population uh, or, or, or viewers in, in Denmark as such, <clears throat> how could this also strike a chord with people who are so so different in terms of their worldviews, in terms of their cultural practices, in terms of their languages, in terms of what is contemporary for them and what is uh, relevant for them. So these are some of the things that entered, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, our our thoughts and uh, and our, our, our curiosity to mm -hmm. pursue these things further. Yeah. Great. Well, should we go on to the project itself? The project has been quite extensive, with eight researchers doing audience studies in several different countries. Australia, Argentina, Brazil, Germany, Japan, Turkey, the United Kingdom and Denmark. Could you say a little bit about how those countries were chosen? When we were committed to investigating the global travel, uh, of Danish television drama, then it was very important for us to have the voices, to have the global voice present. That mm. when we talk about uh, the, the the circulation of symbolic goods, such as television programs made in one part of the world and traveling to another part of the world, that we're actually working with all sorts of uh, travel between all sorts of cores and peripheries. Uh, uh, depending on where you're positioned and where people are positioned. And this sort of sensibility had to be present throughout throughout the project. Uh, we had to choose countries where we knew there was some sort of access to to the three Danish series that we somehow settled on very early in the process. And it, those series were The Killing, for Wilson, Borwin, Borgen, and then um, The Bridge, which is the Swedish-Danish uh, uh, co-production. Um, so that was sort of our first, first like we all three series had to be available in in the countries we went to because those were the series we would focus on in our study. Uh, and then because Borgen at the time hadn't travelled quite as widely as the other two, it did uh, eventually after after we started, but at the time so it did narrow down our countries a little bit. But then at the same time. We wanted to, uh, we had to have big dominant markets. So that, of course, was the UK, uh, Anglophone, the second biggest uh, market and the second biggest export of, of television content in the world. And then we also wanted like strong languages, like uh, strong languages, world languages. So, of course, Spanish and Argentina, Portuguese and Brazil. German is not if not a world language, but it's a very strong European language at least. Uh, and we also wanted, you know, markets that were import dominated. So that would be the German market, for example. And then, of course, we wanted, maybe you can elaborate on that, like completely different languages and completely different mm -hmm. markets where <laughs> the cultural distance was, at least on paper, very, very big. Mm -hmm. Well, looking at Brazil, for example, the, the, what really characterized Brazil was, was this uh, extremely commercial 
television landscape uh, and Portuguese. Um, why? And, and because there were many people in Brazil who actually who wanted to watch the watch the series in in the subtitle versions. So Brazil was uh, was an important uh, market to to look at. And then uh, uh, the insistence on on having an Asian uh, uh, powerhouse in itself in in terms of Japan, because you cannot talk about the global. Um, travel of Danish uh, drama if uh, if you don't have Asia involved uh, then how global is it right so it was also to sort of secure a, a fair representation that when if we were to speak about a global movement if we were to speak about an international the world spanning travel then uh, we couldn't do it uh, and, and forget Asia and that's and where even, uh, even only do it in the Western countries. Exactly, well. exactly. Yeah. So, 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 so Turkey, of course, was also a very important, very, very important place to, to go. To go yeah. And Turkey is a, is an interesting market because they're actually exporting a lot of content to yes. especially the Middle East. Yeah. And they're yeah. like a huge market. Yeah. You know, many, many people live in Turkey. I think they are more, I actually can't yes. remember, but yeah. they're bigger than, than, than Germany, for example. So yeah. they have their own market. One of the the curiosities of the whole uh, the whole traveling aspect uh, that these drama series were traveling in another language than mm. than those that normally travel. Uh, so so that uh, was something that we were you know very curious about. That how how could this happen? Mm. And isn't it true, or I've read for Paulson and the uh, the subtitling of that was a sort of um, uh, watershed that that managed to sort of break down the glass wall or whatever you can call it uh, to you know non English television abroad. I don't know whether that's true uh, or not. Yeah, like the Anglophone world. I yeah, like the Anglophone the, world. Yeah. yeah, so it broke, it definitely paved the way in the, in the Anglophone world because, yeah, for subtitle content, because in other English-speaking countries they subtitle as well, they don't dub. Yeah. Whereas, of course, it wasn't the same glass wall that had to be break, broken through in countries that dub. Mm. Because you know they were used to content from other countries. Okay. But because because uh, the Danish series uh, became a success in a very influential market, the UK, mm. then the rest of the world saw it. Okay, if a subtitled Danish show can make it and become a relatively like actually a huge success, then we can use it too. Yeah. So it's more like a quality stamp mm. that if you could break through to one of the most closed markets for non-English language content, then we can probably use it too in Italy, we can use it in uh, in Argentina, we can, you know, I think a lot of professionals were saying that at the time. Yeah. So it sort of opened the, the, the world's eyes. Okay, thank you. Um, really interesting. You've used a methodology that you call the three-leaf clover. Uh, what does that mean exactly, Pia? Yeah, I think that Pia should answer that. 
yeah, it's really, it's really, it's the thrill of different audiences. The first group were, was the group we called the gatekeepers, which were like uh, international broadcasters, international distributors. That was the first group. Because they were somehow gatekeepers to the different markets that the Danish series moved into. Then the second group were the what we call the cultural intermediaries, which are the journalists writing about the series in, in the respective countries, uh, movie critics, uh, TV critics, um, bloggers blogging about the series, uh, and so forth. So they, the cultural intermediaries were instrumental in creating a, a hype within the countries and also probably international around the Danish series. And then, of course, the third group of audiences is what we usually understand by audiences, meaning you and me, regular audiences, watching our television on a Saturday night. Broadcasters and international distributors, we had to somehow get their eyes open to Danish content for them to buy it to their respective, for their respective markets. Because it wasn't as if Japanese people were hearing about, oh, there's this uh, mm. show in Denmark, uh, you know, we want it to us, <laughs> we, want to, we want to see it in Japan. It wasn't like that. So, mm. so it was a crucial uh, audience to begin with that the distributors and uh, broadcasters had to open their eyes that there was this Danish content. And that happened because some of the Danish series won prizes and then, of course, the success on the BBC4. You know, that really opened, you know, that BBC, BBC is just some, some, it's a broadcaster everybody knows in the whole world and they look to what's happening in the British market. I so, think the, yeah. the, the important thing was that the, the whole, you, we always spoke about the gatekeepers. Yeah, there were yeah. some of the gatekeepers yeah. to the markets, at least to begin with, before the series really took yeah. off. But I think all audiences were equally important in creating the success of Danish uh, drama series uh, internationally. When we talk about the audience, that you know, the, we've really sort of tried to develop an idea about audiences being very many actors who inter, you know, who interact with one another, and each exerts a sort of influence which encourages. Uh, the viewing of these uh, these drama series, and when we use the methodology, it's also to to make these connections between, for example, the hype that's constructed in um, in newspapers in the UK, and how that sort of travels to what a, a buyer or a gatekeeper in another country would be reading and. And is then influenced to actually acquire these um, these drama series, and then they know someone else, a friend, mm -hmm. who then is a blogger who then blogs somewhere else in the world, and that blog is then read by someone else who is interested in Nordic drama series, for example, in a fifth place in the world. So it, it was really to try to map all these linkages all over the world between different types of actors who, who exert some sort of agency in different capacities. And the methodology was there to try, I mean, we, we wanted to, we didn't want to be fixed on, now we're going to ask these regular viewers what they think about the, mm. the, 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 um, 
the series, but instead try to trace and map and narrate how these uh, series travel through different people, through different voices, through different communities of interest, um, all interacting in a, in a way which was very organic in many ways, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. One influencing the other. Yeah. So you use the methodology uh, that you call the three-leaf clover. Were there any challenges involved in that methodology? Yes, it was. The, the challenges were, I mean, how can we produce material which was similar uh, and therefore would allow or enable some sort of comparison? Um, and could we actually do that? Well, this was an, uh, a, a, a global investigation in very many different types of contexts. So if you want to generate the same amount of, uh, or the, the, the information that you generate in your research project will always be different um, depending on, on the context from which it is being extracted. All these conventions of how we approach people and uh, how much people will tell you, I mean, these are all, there, there are a lot of cultural considerations here. Uh, that that we had to uh, that that were challenging. I mean, we negotiated them and we worked our way through them. And then, of course, language issues. Uh, language. It when we had to ask people to give us their views and perspectives of what had motivated them, what moved them, what they had learned from these uh, these series. Um, we were asking them in English and there were interpreters present. So, you know, some things were naturally lost in translation as we know they always are. So what was it about the shows themselves that people wanted to watch? Uh, given the number of countries, there must have been a variety of reasons. Could you summarise a few of them? Yeah. Yeah, there were a variety of reasons, but there were also like I would say four four things that really like yeah four things that really sort of was shared by almost all of our audiences actually it was quite quite surprising, and I think one sort of very important thing was that these series came across to international audiences as super super authentic. Like almost like a verisimilitude, you know, to like almost as if this is how Danes are, and you know, like it was, it was like they were not even watching actors; you know, they were watching real people on screen with real life problems, and and um, yeah, and if you look at the series, they are very, um, they're certainly not overplayed. Uh, and and there is some some of the aesthetics in the series and the acting styles that you can understand why why people saw them as very authentic. So they really, yeah. And this authentic authenticity in the series somehow translated into a sort of with international audiences into sort of a an emotional realism as well that that they really emotionally connected with the characters almost. To a degree, so that yeah, like I already said, they they weren't characters; they were real people. Like if it were, 
Saga Lorraine, they were Salun, they were not not an actor playing the role. They were really like a lot of the struggles that the characters have in the series also, of course, Birgitte Nubor with being a prime minister and struggling family besides and divorcing her husband. And, you know, there were all real life problems that really resonated with the large, mm. large, large majority of the audiences. I think that that authenticity was also uh, expressed in contrastive terms in, in the sense that they were not like what you see coming out of Hollywood, mm-hmm. which were then, they, 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 that contrast was constantly made, that these these series were authentic, these people are real, they have real life problems like I have. They yeah. look real. They, they look, look real. Like, like yeah. I do. They don't wear stilettos in the kitchen, for example, yeah. right? Uh, and so... So um, I think that there's certainly uh, something about mm. that that uh, was extremely. Um, they became everything that Hollywood was not. Yeah, yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> right. So they yeah. became the the yeah. complete opposite to Hollywood. Yes, and also yeah. maybe more than they actually are if you were to textually analyze sure. them, sure. because they actually do have quite high production values. <laughs> but yeah, they just became everything that Hollywood isn't. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think another thing that resonated with many audiences, male as well as female, was the they saw gender a lot in them. Mm. I don't think Danes realized that when we watched them, but just the fact that gender was never a topic, but there were women in strong positions. But it wasn't made into the topic of the series. They were sort of just there, the women were strong, they were a bit quirky, they didn't wear makeup, but it, they didn't have to wear makeup, they didn't have to please the men, you know, and that was really picked up by, and that was seen as a something very liberating to international audiences, which I don't think we really realize in Denmark when we're watching it. Uh, and, and, and to add to that, it's, it wasn't only the strong women or the women who were trying to juggle career and uh, family which is really uh, something, a key that goes through mm. many of, of these uh, series. Um, not only a portrayal of these struggles that women have everywhere, you know, irrespective of where they're living, uh, but also uh, a view of men. Mm-hmm. Men as uh, sentimental, Men as not being able to take decisions. Men as people who uh, were vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, men who took care of children. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there are also these the visions of men. So when we talk about the gender differences that were, you know, it wasn't only about women, but it was just as much about men behaving in in ways that uh, in many of these societies or, or that it's not it's not really common or even if it is common it's not something that is portrayed yes. in public yeah. Um, yeah i think that's it it was probably more common in the in some of the the countries we went to yes. at least in australia yeah. people were commenting that this is like how we live in australia but but we don't see that on australian yeah. drama so it's more yeah. this portrayal of yeah. of uh, of men and women in mm-hmm. in, uh, 
in a way which seemed, uh, yeah. which was one of the key things that yeah. people noticed wherever and, we actually went. Yes. Yeah. And then I think another, like a fourth thing that, that also caught across countries was they saw the somehow the exoticness of the Nordic countries. Like they were watching, you know, interior design, how we live and how we look maybe a little bit different to other places, both uh, our physique, but also very much the, maybe, yeah, the, the way we just, the, the colors, the, yeah. the landscapes, the cityscapes, uh, yeah. most yeah. importantly, yeah. maybe with the Danish series that we're talking about, it was more the cityscapes. And this Nordicness and the, and I think most audiences also look up to the series because they came from the Nordic countries and Nordic countries are seen as progressive. Hence, the series must be progressive as well. So they also read their, their idea of the Nordic countries into the series, I would say. Mm. Whereas the Danish audiences we talked to didn't see the series as very progressive, actually. They were actually talking about, for example, females being stereotyped in the series, for example. Interesting, yeah. really interesting. I mean, Nordic Noir has always talked about landscape, the importance of the landscape. Uh, and that, the further you went from Denmark and, and spoke to people, many audiences would say, is it really true it rains so much? Is it really true it's so great that there isn't any sunshine? Is it really true, uh, you know, that people look a little bit sad? Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. so uh, the, the, definitely they, they help to... Um, reinforce some ideas of yeah. the cold north mm. uh, which you know is certainly not always the case because no. we, we also have very warm and sunny uh, summers right uh, but 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 it, it helped to consolidate those mm. images those sensations those those ideas of, mm. of, of what Nordic is yeah. Yeah? great super um, so did the audiences in different parts of the world perceive the series as Danish or Nordic? Or should we, you just mentioned Nordic noir. Are we able to say? The, the further away you go from Denmark, uh, the more Nordic or even just European, yeah. you know, they become. They say, for example, it was really funny in Australia, they knew very well they were Danish series, but so if you ask them what, what, which country is this from, they would know they were Danish. But they kept referring to them as European, for example, mm. you know, and of course European not being British as well, even though uh, the UK is in Europe, but you know, more like continental Europe. Uh, There's a lot, a lot of conflation yeah. between Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Iceland, Nordic, Europe, yeah. Uh, yeah. some places also just Western. Yes, as well, yeah, right? Of course, yeah. So you have mm. different intensities of mm. conflation going on. Uh, depending on who you're speaking to, and really, I mean, that would also depend on how much they had travelled themselves, or how yeah. much they knew personally of yeah. of different things in the world. But it's not really uh, anything that's uh, that came as a surprise, right, Pierre? Because I mean, if you ask uh, people uh, in 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 Denmark to say anything about other parts of the world. You will have you will face the same forms of conflation 
about other parts of the Latin world or of Africa or of Asia or of the Pacific mm-hmm. area, which yeah. Australia is a major part of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this uh, we just see how the conflation of nations and regions and territories uh, it, it it's not a problem or it's it's not something that happens elsewhere. It just happens everywhere, including here, right? Mm. Interesting point. I guess the reason why it might be of importance is because often a lot of money is spent on branding the Danish or branding the Nordic. Um, I mean, would, would could you comment on that? What has been the relationship with the the overriding perceptions of the Nordics as progressive countries, and whether those sort of branding techniques have been have been coming through in the other countries? I would say it has. Mm-hmm. Denmark has definitely uh, exercised its share of soft power mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. via these series, no doubt, and. It could be that in Brazil they think it's more Nordic countries, not Denmark per se, but it still it still affects Denmark, I guess, that the Nordic, Nordic countries are branded as progressive um, and as a, as a sort of a, a creative powerhouse uh, for the industry. Uh, so definitely, and I think that people, if you're looking at it from an industry perspective, of course the industry knows it's Danish. They know it's not Norwegian. They know it's not German. So mm. the people giving money know where where the series are coming from. Maybe the individual audience member doesn't, but I don't think I don't think that matters so much for the industry itself and for the money generated. Uh, right. I, I would say yes. that would be my mm. take. But mm. I think there is there's definitely a fair share of soft power being exercised via these series. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Even though they're about murder. <laughs> yeah, and that was then my that was then which is odd, very odd because the series don't paint a very no no, uh, no. very flattering portrayal of the Nordic countries. Yeah, and 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 I would say that that crime, the crime genre, really was very important in the Japanese context, for mm-hmm. example. Uh, it really struck a chord with the genres that are extremely popular there. Um, so it's also, uh, you know, what are we actually becoming popular on? Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are also some, some, some lucky coincidences. I mean, some coincidences which are fortunate in, in, in some places. The the big flows or the the normal flows would be that the anglophone, like the UK, the US, they create series. They they they, they, they're the agenda setters, and then the rest of us or the rest of the world copies. But, but the Danish series created a counterflow to that, so that the way the Danish series were produced uh, somehow traveled into other parts of the world. But going back to the soft power, I would say that uh, certainly uh, that there has been a lot of branding and a lot of image construction of what the Nordic countries and are like in terms of their creative uh, you know competence or expertise to be able to produce certain things in certain industries uh, also the portrayals of life in this part of the world that you see through the representations um, they've all been there but the only the only thing that I mean one also has to 
think of that many of these uh, images that are constructed um, in, in the sort of world we live in right now, our soft power can be power at, at one moment, and yet it can be easily replaced by something else which emerges. And I think when we talk about the, the, the audiovisual industry and the whole notion of popular culture and the transfer and the circulation of popular culture globally, um, it, it's a field where things come and go and they, they're doing so at an alarming rate. So something that is popular and important and powerful at one moment, uh, you know, easily it, it becomes eroded in the next and then you see the emergence of something else which is fashionable, interesting, mm -hmm. uh, consumable, mm -hmm. um, important. Um, and then again, mm -hmm. uh, it that becomes that that's eroded and then replaced by something else. So that there's a number. I, I mean, mean, I think it, what's happened is this uh, Nordic Noir, the Danish series. Like I just read that actually Danish series are still very well, just very don't know and, and I know that there's a demand for Danish series and also probably mm. other Nordic series, mm. uh, also in other genres and crime. But I think it's become maybe more the mainstream now. It's not mm. so surprising mm. anymore. And people, mm. I think what we also found was it's it's created a, a creative counterflow. So now everybody wants to make drama in the style of the Nordic mm. noir. And, mm. and every, the Belgians are making dark uh, stuff. Uh, mm. the, the British are making fortitude with the Nordic actors and a very weird dark story in the... In the in the North Atlantic, and um, so now I think what we can I think safely say is that it's mainstream now. It's yeah. not it's not going to win awards. Anymore. It's not surprising. It's not new. Now it's more than mainstream, like more. But I don't. I think it's probably viewer wise almost more popular than ever because it's mainstream. Yes. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. And, and, and but it doesn't have any hype around it. To the same I, degree. Yeah, yeah, I think the point that Pia just made with that it it's sort of one of its perhaps one of its lasting or the legacies of it is that is that it helped to construct this whole noir uh, way of of portraying and narrating mm -hmm. stories, and you see it uh, in you know in Delhi noir for example, from India, or Nuptmoir from Greenland. So you have this whole idea mm. being, you know, moving and, and, and emerging in all sorts of unexpected places. And perhaps that's where, mm. where um, yeah. it's really had some sort of impact. Um, but this thing about that it has now become so mainstream. So what it did was it moved it simply from the periphery into the mainstream. Yeah. And, and but I think now you're saying all this that it's influenced other things, but yeah. you know the Danish series also didn't come out of nothing. That's you right. You know that also right. builds on a, yeah. a long tradition, mm. especially maybe from Sweden with the crime fiction, the very yeah. famous authors in Sweden, yeah. and the yeah. Millennium trilogies, and yeah. and the, a whole uh, change of mindset with the Danish broadcaster that goes back into like the beginning of the 90s so of course it didn't just pop out of nowhere as well it also built on something mm -hmm. uh,
The global success of Danish TV drama in the late 2000s and early 2010s was perhaps surprising, despite the popularity of Scandinavian crime fiction which preceded it. It was surprising for many reasons, not least the relatively small number of people who can understand the Danish language, and that the programmes were produced largely for a domestic audience by public broadcasting corporations. Audiences around the world appear to have responded to the combination of authenticity, emotional proximity, the portrayal of gender and the Nordicness of the series. In 2020, the wave of hype around these programmes appears to be over, but key aspects along with what is often considered to be Nordic noir arguably still influence mainstream television making. been listening to a Nordics Info podcast, which was recorded at the Department of Media and Journalism Studies at Aarhus University in October 2020. Thanks go to our two researchers, Pia and Ushma, to our research hub, Reimagining Norden in an Evolving World, and our funders, Nordforsk. If you would like to find out more, please visit Nordics Info.